0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are in the offices of The Economist, where we're talking to Shashank Joshi, the defence editor here, about Trump, Iran, American power, and the power of the presidency. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB now has a beautiful new website to mark its 40th anniversary. Just go to lrb.co.uk and you will discover a treasure trove of articles from the last 40 years and all the latest writing, including Adam Schatz on the death of Soleimani. If you take out a subscription, you will get all this and so much more. The print magazine, the LRB app and unlimited access to that archive, all for just one pound an issue. To subscribe, visit lrb.me. Forward slash talk. Shashank, we are roughly three weeks out from the drone strike that killed Soleimani. We could have had this conversation three days out, and I suspect there would have been a conventional wisdom that we might have wanted to challenge then about Trump's craziness. We could have this conversation three months out, and it would probably look different again, but. As seen from today, a kind of conventional wisdom is afoot, which is maybe a bit less than three weeks ago, it looked like a crazy act. Now the craziness has a logic to it, which is it's been quite effective as an assertion of American power, as a reminder to the Iranian regime of who can do what in the region and get away with it. Is the new conventional wisdom? wrong? If, if this is a kind of madness or masterstroke choice, where, where are you now?
1: I think that wisdom has come about partly because of the shooting down of the Ukrainian plane, which has put the Iranian leadership on the back foot and constrained their ability to weaponize this outrage, the assassination of their one of their top political military figures against the United States. And so they've been put on the back foot. They have looked like the bad guys. Over 50 people died in the in the funeral procession for Soleimani. And so that has, I think, helped the United States. It's also very clear to see that countries like Israel, that in the days after the strike were clearly rattled, you know, countries that would have welcomed the death of Soleimani were saying, you know, you know this wasn't us, right? This was the Americans. But, of course, a week later, as it looked as though Iran's retaliation would be kept within bounds. Bibi Netanyahu saying this his death was a great thing for the region. We embrace it. For all of that, I think once the dust settles... This is not going to play to America's advantage. When I speak to officials from the UK, the US, they point out that the revolutionary guards that Quds Force, the the special operations branch that Soleimani led, was bigger than him. He built up an institution. He built up talent in the last five years of waging these campaigns in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, people under him. It wasn't just a one-man show. And more importantly than that, the Iranians have done something quite deft in taking advantage of the political anger in Iraq in particular and using it against America at a time when, of course, let's, let's not forget, mass protests in Iraq were being directed at Iran's presence and they successfully neutered some of that.
0: So there's a lot to unpick and when we get on to the politics of the region, lots of different things overlap here. But just on that question, so Netanyahu says initially it wasn't us, it was the Americans. But there was also in that three-day early response period, I kind of thought, well, it wasn't the Americans, it was Trump. I mean, that idea that this stood somehow outside the bounds of what you might expect from something that could be called an American strategic vision, even if that vision is quite Trumpish. Now, three weeks on, it's been folded back in. There's a little bit more of a sense. So there was a point where it kind of was, well, it was Trump. Actually, it was Pompeo. So, Gina Haspel, the CIA director, said that Soleimani's loss would make a
1: difference. So, you know, as about good deep state credentials as you can get.
0: So there was a kind of coming together of the thought that there was at least some part of the American foreign policy establishment, maybe the deep state part of it, behind this. It wasn't the act of a madman who was given a list of five options, option number five with an asterisk saying, don't do this. And he went, I'll do that one. There was something more to it than that. It does fold into a coherent American vision of its place in the world. Is that? I think that 2013 haunts
1: a lot of American officials. The the failure to respond to the use of chemical weapons in Syria, and the sense that that act by Obama, the omission of response, did deep damage to the sense of American reliability and credibility. I, I think also Trump's failure to respond to the shooting down of an American drone, his decision not to respond to the brazen Iranian attack on Saudi oil facilities last autumn, all of these things weighed on him very substantially and very deeply and and contributed to a sense that this however reckless, however wild in what one sense, we're sort of expunging some of those ghosts, some of those things that were haunting American credibility. I think the price that America pays for that will be too high. But I think you're correct to say that a lot of even non-Trumpian Americans are able to see how it fits into an idea of rectifying the sort of reticence
0: and diffidence of a, of a previous era. And Helen, you wrote in the New Statesman in your column this week about America's choices and what it can and can't do and what's a realistic and unrealistic prospectus for America. There is a thought, again, in this new three-week-on-conventional wisdom that something real has been revealed here, that some of the illusions maybe of the Obama years have been stripped away by this act. And this is a more conventional piece of American action in the region, and the realists are relatively speaking happier with it. Is this a reassertion of a kind of, not realism, but at least reality?
2: I think in a way that it is, it fits with the way in which those who get cast as realist, and in some sense, Trump likes to cast himself that way, though on other occasions, I would say he throws realism straight out of the window, want to say that things went wrong, as Shashank's been saying, during the Obama years in particular. And that, that moment in the autumn of 2013, when Obama pulls back from the airstrikes against the Assad regime is for them a a definitive moment. So if you go and look at what says in the 2017 National Security Doctrine, it's very much written in realist language. It's a critique of what might be described as a liberal approach. I think that's an oversimplification, but a critique of an approach that basically says we can make the world a nicer place by international cooperation and prosperity and saying, actually American military power has to be asserted because we're in a world of great power competition that the United States needs to win. I think the tension for the American position leaving Trump out of it is between the need in some sense, which is correct regardless of what you think of the assassination itself, that American power has to be reasserted if America is going to remain in the region. So there's no point in the United States being a Middle Eastern power if it's not going to exercise some power there. On the other hand, there is the problem of Iraq, which is what Chashang was saying. And this is where the, the consequences of what the United States have done in the medium to long term might actually be really acutely difficult for it. Because an even more unstable Iraq than Iraq already is, and getting to the point where the Americans are more disliked again than the Iranians in Iraq is a big problem for the Americans' I point I think what's, what's
1: fascinating is in Iraq is that you have to remember the Americans, whether it's true or not that they need to assert power, I'm, I may quibble with that, that they have a structural disadvantage. They are playing with a handicap. Iran is able to do things like rocketing American troops in attacks that kill Iraqi troops that don't receive criticism, that are shielded by the Iraqi political class, by the Iraqi acting prime minister himself. When America responds, as it did on December 27th, uh, or just after December 27th, by attacking Qatayyip Hezbollah, Shia militia bases in Iraq and Syria, it provoked an outrage. You know, the Iraqi prime minister himself said, this is a violation of our sovereignty. We're going to reassess everything. Now, if you're the United States, you can gripe about it and say, well... This is profoundly unfair. Iran is rocketing Iraqi troops, and the Iraqis are saying, yep, go for it, that's fine. And this, let's not forget these are militias that are formerly part of the Iraqi armed forces in a constitutional, in a legal sense. When America responds, killing 25 or so Shia militia members who have been at America's throats and have, if you look back 15 years, killed over 600 American troops in Iraq with IEDs, the Iraqi political class goes into meltdown, and America is suddenly facing this terrible political backlash. So the dilemma it faces both in Iraq and I think more broadly, is that it may feel it needs to assert power, and others may be egging it on to assert power, but when it does, it faces a very, very more stifling set of constraints than Iran does. Iran is in the region, it's a neighbour, it's next door, it will be there forever, America won't, and I think America has to realise it's sort of batting with a disadvantage here.
0: And America not being there forever, after all, the other thing that we're meant to believe about Trump's instincts is that given the choice he wants out of this part of the world, and yet he doesn't seem to be able to reconcile that in his own mind with his instinct when given the options to assert. Which, which one is it?
2: Well, I think with Trump, it's not, it's just not clear at all. And I think if you, if you read some of the things that he says, he perfectly well understands that, that it's very difficult for the United States to withdraw from the, the region, and that the consequences of the Americans withdrawing from the region on the grounds that supposedly America has energy independence, which I think is actually not true, but let's just sort of leave that assumption there. We will Um, come back for a moment, is that the Chinese and the Russians are going to become more important in the region. Russians already are there. So the perversity, if you like, of the American position, I think in the short term, essentially is that the United States is providing energy security in the Persian Gulf now, primarily for Asian countries, including China. Now, every instinct in Trump reacts against that. And he quite frequently treats on this subject and basically says, look, why is America doing this for other people, particularly for the Chinese and the Japanese? They can do it themselves. But the last thing that the Americans want is China providing military security in the Gulf for China's oil coming through the Strait of Hormuz." And so the Americans are there because the energy side of the world economy has made oil through the Persian Gulf, less important for the United States, somewhat less important for the Europeans, but much, much more important for China and other Asian countries. But the military power that's providing the security around that is still the United States. So if the United States withdraws, it's not going to be a vacuum that's just going to be filled by Iran and other Middle Eastern countries. You've got to deal with the problem of maintaining the openness of the strait, and that is going to bring the Chinese and the Russians much more into play than they are at the moment
1: I think that dilemma is exactly right, this desire to get out of the Middle East, for reasons outlined in the National Defence Strategy that, in the NSS that you mentioned earlier. We can get on to those and the broader implications for Asia perhaps a bit later on. You know, we're already seeing elements of this. The Russians popping up in Damascus a, day, a couple of days after Soleimani's killing, offering the S-400 air defence system to Saudi Arabia after the Aramco attacks. It's a sort of two fingers up to the Americans saying, well, your patriots didn't work so well, did they? The Chinese, of course, have, have cornered the market for armed drones in the Middle East because the Americans won't sell Reapers or Aramco. Uh, armed drones and so the Chinese wing looms and others have stitched up the market in places like Egypt and done very well out of that what I would say though is that that dilemma the administration was was moving in a very firm direction on it before this blew up when I was uh, talking to Pentagon officials about a year, year and a half ago they were telling me proudly holding up the national defense strategy uh, and saying this is the Bible. We're going to act on this. This says the next big thing is great power competition. Do you know what's not great power competition? Iran. Iran is a, is a piddling little country that is operating... Uh, F-14 Tomcats from the Top Gun era and has no regular armed forces to speak of. We are pulling out patriots from the Gulf. I was proudly told by the Pentagon's policy chief how America had had the longest gap in aircraft carrier coverage in the Persian Gulf for years in 2018 because it had sent them to the Pacific instead. So they were proudly saying how, yes, there is a dilemma with Russia and China filling these gaps, but we're willing to take the risk. We're willing to de-risk I think we have to ask why has that been reversed with 14,000 new American troops in the last year, more than I think were in place when Trump began office, which is you know crazy when you think about his campaign pledges. And I think the answer is not some coherent, thought out view of the importance of asserting American power or pushing back at Russia in China. I think it's the fact that Trump walked away from the Iran deal, setting in motion this chain of events, this clown show that he is unable to control and has pushed him into these series of retaliatory actions in a spiral. So I think that ultimately he still wants to get out, but the collapse of the Iran deal, the nuclear deal, is a fundamental reason that is is burning and pulling him back into this dumpster fire.
2: But the point I would somewhat disagree there, though, is, is that this is a persistent pattern in which you have an American president who wants out of the Middle East and then finds that that is not what they that they are able to do so you get the same kind of rhetoric from obama about how shale energy independence is supposedly creating all these new options for the united states and it can concentrate on china i mean that was what the whole asian pivot that obama was keen to talk up from 2011 onwards was about.
0: And that was concentrate on China in a different way than Trump wants to concentrate on (laughs) China, but it's still the same kind of thing. This is the key relationship, whether you have a slightly... Glossier version of it or a more realist version of absolutely. it.
2: Absolutely. And yet that isn't what happens at all. Even, even when Obama pulls back from the Syria attacks in 2013, he's still back in using American military force in Syria and Iraq a year later. Having derided
1: ISIS as a JV team, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing to worry about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so it simply, I think, it seems to me not possible, even in the terms in which American officials like to talk about the ability of the United States to pull out of the Middle East for it to do so. It would take a a massive reappraisal of this issue around the Persian Gulf, which the Americans have been obsessed with, understandably, in in lots of ways, for decades.
0: So unless I missed it, another thing that doesn't add up for me, Shashank, in your description of those conversations with Pentagon officials, they're saying, we're in the great power politics game again. Iran is this piddling power. We're going to walk away from that, including from the nuclear deal. But then that, unless America is willing to assert itself in the region, greatly increases the chances that Iran will pursue a nuclear capability, at which point it ceases to be a piddling power, doesn't it? I think the way to square
1: that circle was the Iran deal. Um, right. This so comes exactly. out. This comes back to disagreements and you know, contested things around: was the Iran deal a genuine, you know, achievement of diplomacy that would have constrained Iran's nuclear ambitions for decades, or was it some sort of flawed, weak deal that would eventually have allowed Iran to break out very quickly in, in after a few years of compliance? I very much take the form of you and think that the way out of that dilemma was to say you had this deal. Iran could enrich. Iran had sanctions relief. Obama's ambition, of course, as he expressed it in his famous interview to Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic, was why can't the Saudis and the Iranians share the region? OK, maybe that was naive, but even if you, you don't have to go that far to see that the deal neutralised the prospect of an Iranian bomb for a long time, buying America space to pull out. That's my view of it. Uh, of course if you're in the Gulf, we were in Israel, you'd say well, that's bonkers if Iran was going to go full steam ahead and the minute America turned around they would have uh, uh, cut loose.
2: I think the the other question though, in, and that is I think where you get the more considered reappraisal of the Iranian nuclear deal was it was entirely detached from these other questions of Iran's behaviour in the region and it was agreed in a geopolitical context that it simply evaporated three months after the agreement was struck and that was because you, three months after the nuclear deal was announced Russia began its military intervention in Syria, and that very much swung the balance of power in the Syrian civil war back towards the Assad regime and the Iranians. That has consequences for Lebanon, that has consequences in terms of the fear that that incites in Israel. So even if you think that the nuclear deal was a better path to containing Iran on the nuclear front, that isn't actually a solution to your Iran problem more generally in the Middle East. But the Iran problem
1: didn't if the NDS is about great power competition and the, 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 the state of America's position in the world vis-a-vis China and Russia, what difference does it make if Hezbollah controls three airports or if the PMF in Iraq controls the interior ministry or, or anything like that? If you're on the Pentagon, you think sort of, so what? How does this make a difference to the bits that I really care about? The high north, the Atlantic, the South China Sea and the Southern Pacific?
0: One thing that we do know about Trump, and it definitely factors into these decisions is that he's allergic to the things that Obama did. So the other way you could frame the dilemma of people around him is, as Helen says, some of these challenges for the United States long predate the Trump administration, and you can see them running through what Obama was trying to do. And yet, if you have to orient yourself to if Obama did it, you do the opposite, but you're facing the same dilemmas, you're going to run into these difficulty. So that not that part of the answer here? So you, you can frame it as the defence editor of The Economist in these strategic terms. But if you're working around Trump, you have to tiptoe around the fact that if it's got Obama's name on it, you have to present him with an alternative.
1: I think that's right. Although the question is, how distinctive and, and radical does the alternative have to be? We, you know, We're familiar with, with the NAFTA renegotiation and the renaming of the deal. And last week, Boris Johnson said, we need to get rid of the jcpoa the iran nuclear deal and we need the trump deal what he meant by that wasn't we need to give trump everything he wants on his wild demands which is iran stop enrichment and stop all of its activity in the region which everyone knows is not going to happen it's impossible there is no diplomatic agreement ever signed that does all of these things but he meant let's cosmetically tweak it iran signs up to a few more things and says some nice things and we rename it the Trump comprehensive plan of action, and hopefully he forgets everything he, he thought about. I mean, maybe that's a bit juvenile, but I, I think that's how Macron started his presidency, trying to push Trump on that. Boris has got there as well from a different point of view. And I suspect that really is the only feasible way out of this, because Iran's nuclear program is now expanding, and only something similar to the JCPOA is going to stop it.
2: I think that the Trump reacting against Obama thing, where the nuclear deal is concerned, is overdone, because every single Republican presidential nominee in 2016, who'd ever won the nomination, assuming that that person then went on to win the election, would have ended the nuclear deal at some point. Whether they would have ended it in the way in which Trump did at the moment in which he did is another matter. But if you go back to the Republican primaries in 2016, Trump probably spent less time on banging on about the nuclear deal than quite a number of the other candidates did. And indeed, he spent quite a lot of time actually during the Republican primaries being the anti-Saudi candidate on the Republican side rather than the anti-Iranian candidate. He was quite late, really, I think, to the Iranian nuclear deal. So whilst I wouldn't dispute Trump's psychology in relation to Obama, I think that we can't use that as anything like a sufficient explanation as to why a Republican president turned against the Iran nuclear deal.
0: And Shashank, so you mentioned the document from 2017 that sets out this vision of a new direction for America in the 21st century, which is essentially going to be China versus United States as the central battle. And there is presumably big fights going on inside the American defense establishment and political establishment about what that means. These then cut across another titanic struggle that's going on, which has visible manifestation this week in impeachment, but is bigger than impeachment, which is about the power of the president. And the, the killing of Soleimani kind of encapsulated both these things. It was To people outside the United States, this extraordinary and slightly terrifying manifestation of the ability of a United States president when given a series of options to say, I pick that one, and then it happens a few hours later. At the same time, it cuts into these larger strategic questions. Can you, are you able to unpick these things? Executive power versus American power, which one dominates at the moment in this way of thinking about America's future?
1: I think executive power enables that expression of American power. Um, this is not just about Trump, although the the way he dealt with the Soleimani attack by, you know, not really notifying congressional leaders, issuing them some sort of fairly rudimentary briefings that even the Republicans said were feeble and in no way demonstrated claims of an imminent threat. For all of that, we have to remember very clearly it was Obama, who also relentlessly expanded presidential powers around things like targeted killings.
0: And before that, it was George uh, W. Bush, absolutely. and before that, it was Bill
1: Clinton. And Bill Clinton, of course, in Kosovo, uh, making it very clear that he he didn't think this was something that required that the War Powers Resolution was relevant. The story of American presidents ignoring Congress and asserting large powers is the norm. It's not the exception. Obama, I think, carved out new space for it, Bush having done so on, on in, in the war on terror. Trump is merely taking advantage of that. Where I think one of the key differences it is, is that there are fewer checks and balances on the internal checks and balances within the executive and the way it operates on the use of those powers. And I mean here both internal deliberation, which I think is more ad hoc and less substantial and serious than it was in the Obama era, but also with allies. I think, you know, we haven't mentioned... The Syria pullout, which I think cuts against a lot of what we've been saying on expressions of American power, I think it was devastating for perceptions of American credibility, didn't consult with allies on that, even allies who were affected, didn't consult with allies on the Soleimani raid, including the UK and France, who have special forces in Syria. And I think the failure to consult with allies and this half-baked policy process mean that you have the same set of very permissive constraints on presidential power, but exercised in more troublesome ways.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, I think that it's clear that if you look at the history of America as a as a superpower, you have the substantial, at least, periods of, of time when you get a lot of presidential power exercise without any regard for Congress. I mean, if you go back to Nixon, this didn't turn actually up in the end in Nixon's impeachment articles, though you could have said it should have done, you know, Nixon was effectively fighting a war, In Cambodia and Laos. Not only that he hadn't notified Congress about that, Congress didn't even know about. And this was going on for two years. I mean, during the the Cold War years, at least until the 1970s, till they turn, American presidents exercised extraordinary executive power in incredibly secretive ways a lot of the time. And then you had a backlash against that, that produced the War Powers Act that was supposed to give Congress back its constitutional role. But that's been quite complicated and contested ever since. I think that one of the things that will be a real part of American politics going forward is is that if American presidents, Trump and maybe his successors, are going to think about America's place in the world in terms of great power competition, they are going to do so without really any domestic political consensus behind them about the justification of using American power in that way and what the ends of it being used are for. And we are going to then see lots of contests between the executive and the legislature about who controls foreign policy. It's going to be a bit more maybe like the the interwar years when America is trying to be a great power where presidents are concerned, but the Congress has got the president on a constant tight leash about what a president can do.
0: Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite
0: I still think there is this question, what's different about Trump? We can talk about continuities, but there is something different about Trump. He is unlike other presidents. It's partly this is the non-hypocritical version of this. I don't think Trump is fighting any secret wars. I mean, obviously, if he is, we don't know about it, but it doesn't feel like that, right? So part of the non-consultation, there's a certain kind of brazenness to this. But also, as Helen says, there's a much deeper partisanship to it as well. And after all, in the case of Trump's impeachment... That is what the impeachment is about. So Nixon's impeachment, if it had happened, was something else. But Trump's impeachment precisely is on this question of executive power, executive privilege, what can and cannot be allowed by Congress. So it's all one or two steps nearer the surface. That seems to be the difference. This, this fight is really happening in public view. And then there's a really interesting, we'll tweet the link to this profile in the New Yorker of Trump's Attorney General, William Barr, who... At various points, people have treated as a bit of a joke, but is a deeply serious, profoundly influential figure, as it says there, the most important person now in the Trump administration, and who has had a lifelong commitment to asserting executive power and executive privilege and is seeing this partisan moment as his opportunity. And you see it with Trump's lawyers too in the impeachment defense. So it's not like the, the Nixon version is kind of, yes, this stuff was happening, but we weren't seeing it. We're just seeing it all. And then Trump's personality makes it more brazen still. Is that the difference? It's the surface version.
1: It's less encumbered by the sort of any sense of shame or, or secre- secrecy that that sort of makes it more um, flagrant. But I think it also makes it easier to defend amongst sort of Senate allies and. My question is, what difference does this all make at the end of the day? We're seeing it one step closer to the surface, as you say, Helen, but we've also seen pushback on war powers. You know, last year we saw bills advance on the president's authority to support Saudi Arabia in Yemen, and it made enormous progress, more so than any of these other bills. But of course, Trump didn't sign it. I don't think there was a veto-proof majority on it. They would have provoked a constitutional battle that they probably would have lost anyway. And on that and on this issue, in which Trump will ultimately be acquitted by the Senate, as we all know, will there be a legacy to all of this on presidential powers? It doesn't seem to me that's the case. It seems we're still on the same path we were on with a slightly more normal president in a year or in five years' time.
2: Well, I think there's, there's two different things that are going on if you look at it for, say, say, like the last decade and a half. On the one hand, you have assertion of executive power, including the executive basically using drone power as as a means of asserting American power abroad, and you can see that in Obama. But also, if you go back to sort of 2007, so sort of more than a decade now, we can see real attempts by Congress to put limits on the way in which a president can use American, you know, military power. I mean it was effectively But quite, none of them worked.
1: They were toothless. They did nothing.
2: Well I don't know about that because I think you could say is is the context in which, for instance, that the Democrat controlled Senate tried to restrict what George Bush could do in Iraq did involve in the end Bush setting a deadline for the withdrawal of American troops from Iraq. Obama was actually, as a senator, involved in that, some of the early versions, Mm -hmm. at least, of that legislation. That was a deadline that then Obama thought had to be effectively observed as president. It led to the, the complete withdrawal of American troops in December 2011. Even if you go back to the moment when Obama decided not to pursue the airstrikes against the Assad regime in September of 2013, the context of that, precipitated actually by decision in the in the British House of Commons, was Obama saying, OK, I'm going to get congressional authorization for that because I'm now slightly worried. And then when he realized that congressional authorization was not going to be forthcoming, pulling back from that. Now, if you go back to that Atlantic interview that Shashank was mentioning earlier, Obama describes this really definitive moment of his presidency, this existential moment when he's not listening to the American foreign policy establishment and saying the blob as he likes to call it and say I'm using my individual judgment but that's a slightly sort of shall we say sanitized version of what actually happened because congress understand that the realization that he wasn't going to get congressional authorization played at least some part in that decision so I would say that we're in a period in which there has been I mean I agree with Shashank that it's not determinant what congress can do but it's putting some limits on the ways in which American presidents can act in the Middle East, in particular,
0: and hasn't it also on Russia had a significant impact? It didn't really, it, it pushed, you always remind us that
2: the original authority for sanctions against Nord Stream came from a bill that Congress passed and that Trump was quite reluctant to sign into law I can't remember that was 2000 I think it was. Just, I think it was 2018.
1: When you mention that it's important to note this is not just about war making powers in a world in which you know America is using all these levers of coercion Congress is particularly significant in sanctions policy on Iran on Russia on all sorts of other states and yes the Treasury Department OFAC their, their sanctions department ha- has enormous powers to implement it but Congress has been a driving force behind these things and I think you're right to say a president has sometimes
0: been a rule taker on some of those things. So two things could happen in November. Trump could win again, or someone else could win. <laughs> so <laughs> that second one is more than two things, because then we're not going to get into who that someone else could be. But, Shashank, you raise the question, what's the legacy of this? This is partly what matters. So he's not going to be convicted by the United States Senate. He will presumably, unless some act of God intervenes, run in the fall, in the autumn, and he might win. Were he to win... How do you think the legacy question then looks? So there's the usual kind of slightly hysterical fear about an unconstrained Trump without needing to worry about re-election with the second mandate, which should all kind of get under our beds. But it would make a big difference, wouldn't it, to this question of presidential power?
1: Yeah, it would make an enormous difference but most importantly is how it's employed and how it's used and the choices he makes and I think the single most consequential legacy would be the hedging behavior that we've seen in the past several years, hedging by, we talked about Russian and Chinese inroads into the Middle East. You know, we haven't mentioned Emmanuel Macron's interview with The Economist, where he was engaged in a sort of extensive several thousand word act of hedging, talking about Europeans need to show sovereignty and work within themselves in order to sort of stop being crushed by these sort of Sino-American vice. And we can point to examples in, in Asia as well, where Japan and South Korea, I think, are deeply perturbed by the last several years. The impact on alliances, which, by the way, was at one of the three, pillars of the national defence strategy. It was about, you know, great power competition. It was about working by and with through allies. There was a third element I can't recall now, but allies were absolutely fundamental to it. This is why James Mattis resigned, because he realised this was being torn to pieces and ignored. And I think if we see a re-election, the most consequential thing we see is plan B's, plan C's being explored, put into motion, pursued by allies in Asia, Japan, South Korea, Australia, by Europeans, by Saudi Arabia, by the the other Gulfies, by Europeans. And that is going to be a process that takes off under re-election, I think.
2: I I think that sort of the singularity of Trump can be overdone where alliances are um, concerned. I mean, again, if you go back to the Macron's interview with The Economist, in his critique of NATO, and obviously some of that is directed very firmly at Trump, particularly the decisions about withdrawing troops from from Syria that were taken in the latter part of, of last year. He also makes it clear though that as far as he was concerned that the definitive moment actually came under Obama and it was back to that moment in September 2013 where the French were left high and dry by Obama's withdrawal from that action. If you go back to the war against ISIS, the French got sufficiently dissatisfied with what was happening to effectively start their own independent military operation in, against ISIS as well. If you turn to the NATO question, I think that it, it's quite hard to see how any future American president is not going to have qualms, at the very least, about NATO and the position of Germany in particular in relation to NATO, both on the side of Germany's financial contributions and Germany's energy dependency on on Russia and and Nord Stream. These are structural issues that go quite a long way beyond Trump.
0: So I want to finish with two questions about energy, but also about climate and how it interacts with what we've been talking about. So what is Trump doing while he's being impeached, while he's at Davos? And the great symbolic contest of our time, this week anyway, is Time Magazine's Person of the Year, Greta Thunberg, who's got a great look when she's looking at Donald Trump. She really does know how to give him that look. And Trump himself. And Trump stands for something in this fight, something pretty clear. As it's been articulated this week, it's against the doom-mongers and the, the pessimists, the gloomy teenagers. He's an optimistic old guy. But he, in those terms, can put himself at the head of at least some... World leaders who would take his side against Greta. So, if, if the contest is Donald against Greta, Donald has some new alliances to make. And again, we don't know whether he's thought any of this through. But is is what's part of what's going on this week got something to do with that? As climate cuts across this question, he's presumably got a better shot with some of his fellow world leaders at getting them to think that they're all in this together. The slightly less hysterical response to the climate issue, are more realist, uh, has, but also potentially optimistic.
1: How many allies does he have? It seems a fairly meagre set of friends on this issue. You know, he can, he can sort of clutch Scott Morrison and, and
0: Bolsonaro. And, you know, you've got a reasonable... Where do you, where do you think Boris is on this? Well, Who's amazing. Boris going to pick when he has to choose between Donald and Greta?
1: I think that... Um, do do, you, British, not, do you, British, British, you not have to pick? I think that British domestic politics... And the politics of the Conservative Party, which which you, you two know far more about than I do, really prevents Boris from moving into Trump's camp on this. I, I don't think that's feasible, even in the new Tory party. But it also
0: prevents him moving into Greta's camp.
1: I think it does, but I think that on commitments to you know net zero on the importance of climate policy you know, we famously remember david cameron talking about was it cutting the green crap i think was his phrase we don't hear that anymore that's not a politically wise slogan to use it's not even a politically wise policy to talk about uh, you know it's it's climate centric policies are have played a role even in the tory manifesto so i don't think he has boris in his camp i wonder whether the way that trump sees it really is in as part of this back to the point about realism a relentless struggle for economic and political dominance and anything that hinders that, whether it's climate adjustment or whether it's liberal trade, is set by the wayside. And ultimately, it's, it's part of that competition. And China lurks in the background for the way that Trump sees it.
0: And Helen, it comes back to what you wrote about in the New Statesman this week. So you said Trump, and you touched on it earlier, has his illusions. And it is the, the illusion of American energy independence and the ability to step back when you need to step back from these conflicts because you're no longer dependent on the energy sources in those parts of the world. And you said this is a fantasy, right?
2: Yeah, I think it's a fantasy for two reasons. First of all, because shale oil, uh, shale gas, I think, is a, it's a somewhat different matter, but that shale oil will have a shelf life. I mean, if you look at what the International Energy Agency is saying about this, under present conditions anyway, it's probably going to start diminishing slowly to begin with, but from the latter part of this decade, perhaps the early 2030s, but certainly by then. So it's not something that's a solution for America's energy needs going forward for a long time. Now, you can say by then oil won't be as necessary. I,
0: you have your doubts. I have got my
2: doubts, uh, shall we say, as has the International Energy Agency. The second thing is, is then the question of, well, even over this next decade where the United States is moving towards self-sufficiency. That doesn't actually mean that the United States isn't importing oil because shale oil and conventional oil are not substitutable necessarily with each other. That still means that the United States will be importing oil. And the third problem is that any supply shortage because of what happens in the Persian Gulf has consequences for oil prices. And all economies are still, you know, very dependent on oil and very vulnerable to an oil price. And indeed,
0: all presidential election campaigns sometimes are vulnerable to that too,
2: right? I'm not sure whether it's still held in the last few years through Trump, but for a reasonably long period, certainly going back to the, you know, the 90s, there is some kind of correlation, a reasonably strong correlation, actually, between oil prices and presidential approval rates. These things matter for American elections. So the idea that any industrialised economy can insulate itself from what happens in terms of the transportation of oil through the Persian Gulf is an illusion. And the problem, the geopolitical problem that arises from it, though, is is that, as I said earlier, quite a lot now, in fact, a high proportion of the oil that is coming through is actually going to Asia, when previously it would have been going to Europe or to the United States. And that is what creates this, seems to me, fairly fundamental difficulty in the world in which we now live is is that you have a situation where the Americans are the ones who are basically guaranteeing the openness of the strait and the Chinese and the Japanese are the primary beneficiaries of that now that's fine on the Japanese side of it the Americans have been doing that essentially since the 1950s In in some respect it's a lot more complicated on the on the Chinese side of it.
1: It's noteworthy that Japan did send a destroyer to the Gulf, you know, for the the first time for an intelligence mission. It's not plugging into the US Operation Sentinel, which is a bit that guards or moves.
2: It got renamed now. I've forgotten what the new name is, but it's not called Sentinel now. Uh,
1: It's the International Maritime Security Construct, but Sentinel's a military bit that sits under it. But I think you're right about the Chinese. Your analysis of energy markets may be spot on. That doesn't necessarily mean that's how American policy will be guided. And I wonder if there are Voices in the Trump administration, particularly in the second term, um, subject to what happens with the Iran deal, that say if the Chinese want to sit there in the Gulf and stretch their supply lines, divert their navy from the Western Pacific, sit there in Hormuz, be forced to deal with these fickle, unhelpful, occasionally dangerous and reckless allies... You know, Over to you. Have fun. Have fun with it all. Um, I think there are and, some and people... they, they might think, be willing to do I that. I
2: think there are some voices who are saying that. Whether those voices have got any chance of winning within the foreign policy debate in, in the United States, that, that's what I'm more sceptical about. I mean, because it would be a massive geopolitical turn in terms of the world as it has been since essentially the end of the Second World War.
1: I think that's right, but I think... Even relative to what we saw in the years of the Obama rebalance, which was what, sort of just after 2010 and a few years after that, 2011, 2011, and sort of the term was stretched on. It was pivot. And then, of course, they said, sorry, we didn't mean pivot because that scares Europeans. We meant rebalance. The military conditions in the Western Pacific and America's ability to defend Taiwan, to defend outlying Japanese islands has fundamentally changed even in the period since Obama talked about that. Another plug, if you don't mind, I wrote a piece on aircraft carriers and the future of aircraft carriers and their vulnerability to precision missiles. Even within the last few years, China's ability to target moving ships with ballistic missiles has advanced and come a long way since the it, state of the art in 2011 when Obama spoke. And that change in the military balance means it. As important as the Gulf is, as important as energy security is, and as important as it is not to allow Putin and Xi to run riot amongst traditional American allies and friends in the Gulf, I still think the Western Pacific is going to exert a very powerful hold on the American securocracy in the next term.
0: Just a last question, because as you were talking and as Helen was talking about whether or not our ability to break free from oil dependency is real, Donald versus Greta, so he's framing it as... She's the doomster and I'm the cheery guy. But there's also a realism, idealism aspect to this. So we don't hear much about climate realism. But presumably at some point and at some level, this is going to kick in. And maybe it does go beyond Donald Trump and Scott Morrison and Bolsonaro. There are some genuinely difficult questions being faced by all major states about energy and climate. And compared to what Greta is demanding... There are probably more realists out there than there are idealists. Now, I'm not saying that Trump's the one to marshal that support, and who knows what will happen in the presidential election. But climate realism in this context is going to become real, isn't it?
1: Do do you mean the the tangible effects of climate change on geopolitical and security problems?
0: But also, given that... The fact that change is much harder than the people who are demanding change will admit. So a realist might both think that climate change is real. I think you can't be a realist and not think it's real. And also think, as Helen described it, that the world is as it is. And the dramatic change that's being demanded by people like Greta Thunberg is fundamentally unrealistic. Well,
2: that's where I think that the question you're asking, Shashangula, about Johnson doesn't have to be either or at all. You can be completely realist about climate and say that there's a massive problem that has to be faced. And you can at the same time be extremely realist about present tense energy and say that it's incredibly difficult to move away from oil and gas dependency and that it's going to take a long time and that the timescale required on the climate side and the timescales for the possibilities of change on the energy side are not necessarily compatible with each other at all. And you can then be realist about what the geopolitical consequences of present tense energy dependency are. And I think that there has been a tendency that's gone back really since the shale boom started, sort of in the earlier part of the, the last decade, for... Americans, including within the American foreign policy establishment, to be very idealistic about what shale brings about. They think that, I mean, you could hear that in Obama's language, you can hear it in Trump's language, is they think that it brings about geopolitical transformation that allows America options that it didn't have prior to shale. And I think that that is illusionary.
0: And I was going to say, and it was partly provoked by what you wrote, Helen, in The New Statesman this week, whatever Trump is and whatever forms of realism he has injected new life into, it's not that kind of realism. It's not, not at all. We wanted to let you know about an event that's happening in Cambridge. that's open to anyone who might like to come along. I'm going to be in conversation on Wednesday the 12th of February in the evening with Michael Ignatieff, the writer, broadcaster and former politician, talking about the prospects for democracy. And next week we're also going to be talking about the prospects for democracy with Roberto Foa. That's going to be a conversation about whether people around the world really still have confidence in it. We will tweet the link to the Ignatieff event at tppodcast underscore. And as always, you can find details about the articles that we discussed this week in our excellent show notes. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Is there anything else I need to say? Can we plug the economist again? (laughs) I, I should get plenty in. Here, so you did. I'll get my bonus. You both, yeah. both plugged the macro in. I have read that you about 10 times. Yeah.
2: Sorry. I read that interview the about The macro 10. one,
0: yeah. yeah. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Nothing, nothing to do with me. But. Uh.
1: For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best
0: podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.